Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. chapter 12, if you'll stand with me as we read the scriptures, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel.
what Erica is playing is found in the very front of your hymn book. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God all creatures here below. Praise God above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's a very Trinitarian song. I, I think we should sing it. intention is to finish the Trinity teaching for the moment this morning. As Jeff mentioned, David Morris will be here next week. The week after that is the conference in Gladeville. We will not be here on that Wednesday night. If you want to go to church, come out to Gladeville. Let's review. I can sum up our review in seven simple statements. Number one, the Father is God. Number two, the Son is God. Number three, the Holy Spirit is God. Number four, the Father is not the Son. Number five, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. Number six, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. And number seven, there is only one God. I hope that I showed you and proved those seven statements last week. But then I also said to you that I was going to demonstrate that the Bible says that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all God. So let's start the morning by handing out some verses. Tom, look up Philippians 1-2. Steve, since you're right there, Titus 2.13, Micah, if you would, John 20.28, 20, Shane, since you're right there, Acts 5, and you're going to read verses 3 and 4. The reason that we're going to read these particular verses is that they all say that particular members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are God. They are all designated as being God. And so, as we saw last week, the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one God. And yet he is one God in three persons. And throughout the Bible, we see the interactivity between the three persons of the Trinitarian God. And that's sometimes difficult for our human logic to get a hold of. But hey, no surprise that God himself would be beyond our human comprehension. If we could fully comprehend him, he wouldn't be God. He'd be one of us. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons, and collectively they are one God. For instance, Tom is going to read Philippians 1-2, in which we're going to hear that the Father is God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. From God our Father. So the Father is designated as God. In Titus 2.13... Steve is going to read that for us. Jesus is declared to be God. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he is declared to be God. You may recall 
that after Jesus' resurrection, when the apostles were gathered together, that Thomas said, I won't believe unless I can put my hands into the holes in his side. And then Jesus appeared to him and said, don't be doubting. It's me. Come touch the holes in my side and in my hands. John 20, 28. Mike is going to read that for us now. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus did not bristle at that idea. He accepted the worship. He accepted the designation of being God. Shane is going to read Acts 5, verses 3 to 4, which is going to say that the Holy Spirit is God. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you conceived this deed in your heart? You lied not to men, but to God. So the question first was, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And then he concluded it, why have you lied to God? Because the Holy Spirit and God are one and the same, completely equatable. There are plenty of allusions to this Trinitarian God in the Old Testament. We're not going to go through all of them, but you may recall like Psalm 2, where you're told, kiss the son, lest he be angry. God says, kiss the son. Or in Isaiah 9, 6, you're all familiar with, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. What's the next? The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. And so you see distinction, and you see this kind of cohesion among the members of the Trinity, even here in the Old Testament, because God does not change. There are various different theologies out there that say that Jesus at some point became God. What you see in the Old Testament is that he has eternally been God. God himself has always been Trinitarian in nature. And that is why when you look at the Gospel of John, it begins by creating distinction and unity between the Father and the Son. What it says is, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus himself, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Okay, that's separation, that's two personalities. Jesus was with God. But then the next statement John makes is, and the Word was God. So he was with God, And he was God. In that simple statement, you see both individuality, personhood, but then you see this unity between the two of them. He, the word, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. Now that's real important because that again establishes the Trinitarian nature of God. As God was creating, just like we saw last week, When we looked at the beginning of the book of Genesis and saw that the spirit of God was upon the deep, that it was without form and void, and then God began creating everything. Well, he was creating by his spirit. So you see father and spirit there at the beginning, at the creation. John says, and oh yeah, Jesus was there too. So you see father, son, and spirit in the creation of everything. They have always been three people, one God. In the beginning, Jesus was with God, and all things that came into being came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that came into being. So when you compare what John wrote at the beginning of his gospel To what you see at the beginning of Genesis, you see representation of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in the beginning at the creation. And everything that was made was made by the joint effort of Father, Son, and Spirit. So, Jesus is God. 
at the same time he's with God. And then in John 1.18, we're told no one has seen God the Father at any time, but the only begotten God, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father. Okay, that's separation. He's in the bosom of another. He who is in the bosom of God has explained God to us. Had Jesus not come to the planet, none of us would have any idea what God is about. In fact, the particular Greek word that is used there is exegeomai, which is actually the word from which we get exegete, which means to actually pay attention to what the text says and then draw meaning from the text. You've heard me use the word exegesis a lot. Well, Jesus came to the planet in order to exegete God for us because they were two persons, but they were so combined in essence that he was able to tell us firsthand what God is about. And there's no way for us to understand it otherwise. No one has seen God at any time The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And then later in John 16, he continues this Trinitarian explanation and language. John 16, starting at verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, okay, that's the Holy Spirit, when he comes... He will guide you into all truth. For he, the Holy Spirit, will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come, and he will glorify me. That's distinction. That's separation. When the Holy Spirit, who the Father is going to send, when he comes to you, he's going to remind you of all the things that I have said, and he is going to glorify me. Because he's going to take from mine, says Jesus, and then disclose it to you. And all things that the Father has, one personality, is mine, another personality. Therefore, I said he takes of mine and he, separate personality, will disclose it to you. And yet they're all working in unity together. I keep emphasizing that there is this unbreakable unity between them. And yet the Holy Spirit's distinct from the Father. He's distinct from the Son. They all have separate roles within the Christian life and within biblical and our individual experience. And so I hope that through this introduction this morning and through what you heard last week, I hope that you're getting some sense of Trinitarian doctrine. But once you've kind of got a grasp of that, it's a simple question to then say, yeah, but really, Jim, now that I know that, what does that really mean to us? How does that really manifest itself to me on a day-to-day basis? Well, we as a church function on a Trinitarian basis. When we start the next series, we'll be talking about the church, the purpose of the church, some of the history of the church, why the church, leadership within the church, the various functions of the church, that collectively is known as ecclesiology from the word ecclesia, which is the gathering, the assembly of the church. So how does Trinitarian doctrine and understanding affect our ecclesiology? Well, in many, many different ways. You can't really function as a Christian church without functioning in a Trinitarian understanding. Here's what I mean. Let's start in 1 Corinthians 12. Everybody turn there. I'll even pause for a moment to give you time to get there. Paul is going to start describing how a church operates within itself, and he's going to describe it in a Trinitarian way. 1 Corinthians 12, 
starting at verse 1. He's talking about the spiritual gifts. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of these things. So now concerning the spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were being led astray to mute idols, idols that could not speak. By contrast, we're dealing with a God who can speak, therefore he can tell us about himself. But mute, dumb idols, that's what you used to worship, and you were led astray by that kind of idol worship, however you were led by them. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God Okay, so there it is, the Spirit of God now. No one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. If you have the Holy Spirit of God, if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, you cannot denounce Jesus from your heart meaningfully the way the world does. The world dismisses Jesus. The world uses Jesus as a swear word. They use it as an exclamation. But they don't bow the knee to him. They don't recognize the value of him. They don't feel any need of him. Why? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. But if you have the Holy Spirit of God, not only can you not denounce Jesus finally, Yes, in your rebellious little life, you're going to go through periods of time where you feel like, that's it, you're going to stomp your feet, I quit, I'm done with this Christian thing. You'll try to walk away. Anybody ever tried that? I know I have. Did it work for you? No. Why? Because the Holy Spirit seals you for eternity, seals you as owned by God, And therefore, you cannot finally denounce Jesus because of that preservative power of the Holy Spirit that resides inside you. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Holy Spirit says Jesus is anathema. That's a tough thing to think. Jesus is accursed. We kind of bristle at the very sound of the words. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You in your natural state, your natural fleshly state, you would be just like the whole rest of the world. You wouldn't see any value to Christ. You wouldn't be willing to spend your life pursuing the things of Christ. You might even be willing to say horrible, ugly things about Christ like the rest of the world does. But then God deposited his Holy Spirit in you. And because that is a Holy Spirit and it converts you, it regenerates you, it quickens you, it awakens you because the Holy Spirit and the experience of having received the Holy Spirit, because of that, you are finally able to say, Jesus is my kurios. Now, we here in the 21st century here in America, we have a tough time understanding what that word means. We have a tough time gathering the concept of kurios or of Lord. Lord, as a translation of kurios, makes sense because when the King James was being translated, they were living in a society full of lords and people who were underneath those lords, the serfs, the everyday people. If you've ever watched costume dramas from early European history, especially about, like, feudal England, then you've seen the lords and the ladies, and then you've seen the serfs, the people who serve under them. And the lord of the manor, sometimes called the laird, he's the one who's in charge of all those people who are living on his land. And so, in that kind of society... When the King James translators were bringing the Bible from Greek into English and they dealt with the word kurios, which meant the master, the overseer, truly the sovereign one, 
the best word for them to come up with in a one-for-one equivalency was Lord, because they know what that was. They knew that the Lord had complete control over you and when you eat and what you do and who you marry. They have control over your life. So it made sense to translate Lord. But we here in America in the 21st century, we don't really have lords. So it's hard for us to envision that idea of an absolute master, the one who's completely in control. In order for you, fleshly little, measly little, lizard-brained you, to come to the conclusion that somebody has absolute mastery over you, there has to be a change to how you think and to who you think that Lord is. And you will never come to the conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth, who lived in the Middle East 2,000 years ago has mastery over your life unless God puts his Holy Spirit inside you and then you will most willingly admit Jesus is my Lord. But you can't do that just by your flesh. And so for you to come to the conclusion that Jesus is your Savior, he is the one who is in charge of your life, He is your mediator. He is your redeemer. For you to come to that conclusion, you have to have the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus said, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, is then going to lead you to Christ. And Paul said that no one can say Jesus is accursed if they have the Holy Spirit. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And then within the collection, within the ecclesia, within the body of Christ, there's going to be a variety of gifts, a variety of abilities. And not everybody's going to have the same gift. They're not going to have the same ability. In the weeks to come, as we talk about the church, we're going to get deeper into this idea. But just know for the moment that within the body, There are gifts distributed according to the need of the body. Not everybody gets the same gift, but all of those gifts are for the benefit of the entire body because God knows what he's doing when he puts a body together and he knows how to give that body the particular gifts that are necessary for that body to function as a Christian church. And where do all those gifts come from? Well, that's the next thing Paul tells us. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are a variety of the workings of those gifts, but the same God who works everything and everyone. He just mentioned spirit and Lord And Father. Lord is obviously a reference back to Jesus because he just said, Only by the Spirit will you say that Jesus is Lord. So, Father, Son, and Spirit are at work in the function of the church. The Spirit is bringing out a variety of gifts, but it's God who determines how those gifts are going to work, how they're going to manifest themselves, and In that variety of different ministries, different helps, different ways of caring for each other, providing, taking care of, looking after each other, through all of that, it is Jesus who is the same Lord, regardless of which gift you got and how it manifests itself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All I'm trying to show is that a church cannot operate, cannot function in a truly biblical Christian way unless Father, Son, and Spirit are at work in that church. There's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of workings, but the same God who works everything in everyone. But to each one that's us, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what is profitable. 
So we all have the same Holy Spirit, and then that Holy Spirit is giving us gifts and functions so that we then can be a blessing to the whole rest of the body so that the body itself operates collectively because we are under the headship of Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, so then if the church is supposed to operate in a Trinitarian way, how will that manifest itself? Well, how we baptize. We engage in Trinitarian baptism. In the baptism of Jesus, we saw the Holy Spirit come down from heaven in the form of a dove and land there with Jesus. And then a voice from heaven spoke and said, this is my beloved son. So you see Father, Son, and Spirit at the baptism of Jesus. Mark 1, verses 9 to 11 says, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came from the heavens. You are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. So all three members of the Trinity are distinct at that moment. Jesus is in the water with John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit is in the representation of the dove. And there's a voice from heaven saying, this is my son. That's the voice of the father. Complete distinction between the three. At that moment, you'd have no problem saying, that's one, that's another one, and that's another one. And yet, they are one God with identical attributes. In other words, Neither the Father, nor the Son, nor the Spirit is in any way inferior to the other two. They are all collectively God. They are equal in power, in love, in mercy, in justice, in holiness, in knowledge, and in all their other qualities. Even though they have particularity in function, they are all equally God. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You're following me so far. Am I boring anybody yet? No. Okay, just making sure. One passage that really, for me, just brings us all together as clearly as, as it's said anywhere else in the Bible is Matthew 28, 19. When Jesus instructs his apostles, this is what we call the Great Commission, as he is telling them to go out now and preach his gospel, what he says to them is, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, the authority, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He equated all three and said, when you are baptized, you need to be baptized in the name, under the authority of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as an individual, just Holy Spirit baptism. Not a Christian version of it anyway. There is no such thing as, I've been baptized into the Father, I'll get to the Son later. Christian baptism, biblical baptism, the way that we baptize here at GCA is in the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Even though Jesus took the time to distinguish each of them as individual persons, nevertheless, he said to baptize in the name of all three. Therefore, each of those three people has to be deity because Jesus just placed them all three on the same level. Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm sure Jesus was not going to have us baptized in the name of any mere creature. So therefore, each of the persons into whose name we are baptized, they have to all be deity. Notice that although the three divine persons are distinct, we are baptized into their singular name, 
not names, plural. Jesus didn't say be baptized in the names of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Instead, collectively, he said, be baptized in the name under the authority of these three collectively. So the three persons are distinct, and yet they constitute one name. And that's because they share one essence. So this this Trinitarian concept keeps coming up time and time again in the Bible and in how we are told to function as a church. If you want to look at Acts 8 for just a moment, I I thought about whether or not I was going to throw this in. There is an example, there are actually a couple of examples in the book of Acts of people who have been baptized into some baptism other than the Father, Son, and Spirit. And what you see in both cases is that they are missing some important part of Christian life. What they're missing is the Holy Spirit. In Acts 8, starting at verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They had professed faith in the Lord Jesus, but they had not been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, had not yet received the Holy Spirit Therefore, since they had been baptized into Jesus, they weren't rebaptized, but they laid their hands on them and then they received the Holy Spirit. So they were missing the very vital part of the Christian walk in life, which is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, because they had not been baptized in the Trinitarian profession of faith. Or again in Acts 19, the first seven verses. It happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and he came to Ephesus and he found some disciples there and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Okay, now John's baptism was a baptism for repentance among the Jews. That wasn't baptism into the faith of Father, Son, and Spirit. So they said into John's baptism, Paul said John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So when they heard this, They were baptized again in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they were speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there was about 12 men. Okay, so fully orbed, proper baptism, Christian baptism is in Father, Son, and Spirit in their name, in their authority and in the early church as that teaching was being spread about, as people were learning it, there were people who had been baptized into other things, other names, limited, not Father, Son, and Spirit, and they ended up missing out on the Holy Spirit who was then added to them later through the apostles. So the Trinity, I just stress this again, is just a biblical reality, even if its very existence kind of stretches our concepts of how reality works. The metaphysics of heaven are very different than the physicalities of this world. And so we can't limit heaven by our own physical limitations, just because you might have a difficulty conceiving of the idea of three in one. That doesn't limit God who can be and explain himself and exist as three in one. We instead have to bow the knee and just say, yes, sir, that's what you've said. That's the truth. Because after all, Father, Son, and Spirit, that's our Lord. That's, That's who we worship.
The Trinity also plays a role, I think, in how we pray. I was asked last week, is it okay for us to pray to the Father and the Son and or the Holy Spirit? How does that work? Who are we supposed to pray to? How are we supposed to pray? And even that, it turns out, is a Trinitarian thing. Biblical Christian prayer is Trinitarian. Here's what I mean. According to the Bible, we should pray to God the Father. That's what Jesus taught when he gave the disciples the model prayer. When they came to him and said, John the Baptist has taught his apostles to pray, so teach us to pray. He said, when you pray, say this, our Father who art in heaven. So who are they praying to? God the Father. They're praying to God the Father. Who did Jesus, when he was on the planet, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, who did he pray to? God the Father. He prayed to God the Father, yeah. And so throughout the Bible, prayer ultimately is to God. What we saw in the book of Revelation was that the throngs before him and the 24 elders had golden vials full of sweet-smelling incense, which were told is the prayers of the saints, that are then brought before God. So he is the ultimate receiver of our prayers, and we are to go pray to him. But as we saw this past Wednesday in the book of Jeremiah, God himself said, who would be so foolish as to risk his life and approach me? Because God himself encases himself in a light that no man approaches. God is so unique and separate from us, so much higher and holy and different than us that we don't get to just burst into his presence and say, hey, God, it's me. I got a list of things I'd like to ask you about. We don't have that kind of reception in heaven. Instead, we need a mediator. We needed somebody to make it okay for us to go to God. In the Old Testament, the common folks could not just go to God. They had to have a sacrifice, and they had to have a priest. And what they knew about God was from the prophets. So God would talk to his prophets. They would tell the people, this is what God says to you. Then the people would bring a sacrifice to a priest, and the priest would take it to God. But you didn't have ready access to God whenever you wanted. And so Jesus, as our mediator as our go-between, is the one who makes it okay for us to go to God and pray to him. So, through God the Son, we're then able to go and ask of God. Because he himself said, no man comes to the Father but by me. So we only get to the Father through him, and then he said, when you pray... You can now go to the Father, and you can say things like, give us our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. But when you do that, you have to do it in my name. My name, my authority, is how you get to God, which is why so often when we pray, we'll finish the prayer by saying, in Jesus' name. Because it is his authority that allows us to go to a high and holy God and not be encroaching on him. So, through God the Son, we're able to go pray to God the Father, but we do that by the means of God the Holy Spirit, because Romans 8.26 tells us, now in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So when we, emphasis again, measly little us, when we go to talk to God, the maker of heaven and earth, the all-omnipotent master of time, space, and reality, what do we really have to talk to him about? Why would he be willing to listen to our prattling? Because Jesus, our intercessor, died, redeemed us, and then we receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit listens to our prayers, 
essentially cleans them up and then takes them to God so that they are a sweet odor brought before the throne of God. We don't do that by ourselves. But we pray to God through the authority of Jesus Christ by the power and intercessory work of the Holy Spirit. Prayer is Trinitarian. I'm nearly almost to the point of almost nearly sort of kind of getting to the last page of my notes. I didn't say done. Did you hear the word done? You didn't hear that. Okay, so uh, we're a church that isn't afraid of eschatology. We're a church that talks about prophecy a lot because the Bible talks about prophecy a lot. Somewhere between a quarter and a third of the Bible is prophetic. And so if you don't talk about prophecy, you have to kind of cut out big swaths of the Bible. But biblical eschatology is Trinitarian. Even things like when you get to the book of Revelation and you read about Antichrist or the false prophet and how they are led by the dragon well, there you go. You got the dragon. That's Satan himself. You've got the Antichrist. The name is right in there, opposite Christ. And then you've got a false prophet. You've got a Trinitarian evil coming your way during the time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again. Look at Revelation 5 for just a moment. I, I will wait for just a moment. Because you keep seeing this combination of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even in the eschatology we believe in. Revelation 5, I'm going to start reading at verse 12. Then I looked, and he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when it is shaken by the wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and listen to what they said. And they said, say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. Who's that? That's God. Hide us. The wrath of God is finally here. The eschatological day of the Lord is upon us. The wrath of God is falling on the planet at this moment, but they didn't stop there. They said, hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So there you go, Father and Son. For the great day of their two, personality, individuality, Separate, two of them. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? All the way through the Old Testament, you see this idea, the day of the Lord. And it's always prophesied as being a time of darkness and trouble and death and the wrath of God being poured out. So it is the day of Yahweh. And everybody knew through the Old Testament, it's the day of Yahweh. It's the day of Yahweh's wrath. You get to the New Testament, you find out that Jesus is right there in it, right in the midst of it. It's also the wrath of the Lamb. The same way that Genesis begins with Father, Son, and Spirit resulting in all of creation. At the end of everything, when it's time for the wrath of God, you see that same Trinitarian God who created everything coming back in wrath for the destruction and restoration of everything. 
So whether you're talking prophecy, whether you're talking eschatology, whether you're talking prayer, whether you're talking about the function of the church, throughout the Bible what you see is that Christian life is led in a Trinitarian way, in a Trinitarian form. It is impossible to avoid the Trinity and be fully functionally Christian. Also, Revelation 14 Another angel, a third one, was following them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his right hand, then he also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and In the presence of the Lamb. So again, God and the Lamb are pouring out eschatological wrath. You see individuality. You see unity even in the wrath of God being poured out. Finally, and yes, I do mean finally. Our salvation is a Trinitarian salvation. You don't have true biblical Christian salvation without the work of the Trinity. Here in John 6, here's how he puts it. Jesus speaking, starting in verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Okay, so how is it that anybody comes to Christ? They come to Christ because the Father gave them to Christ. Nobody just woke up one day and said, I think I'll go to Jesus. No, they were too busy enjoying their sin, enjoying their flesh. They had no concept of their own sinfulness or their need of a Savior. People without the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit never come to the point where they think, I need God. But the reason that you believe in Christ today, the reason that you do admit that he is Lord today is because you've been given to him by the Almighty. And by the way, for the folks who think that you can resist the grace of God, let me just say, you're you're not big enough to resist the grace of the Almighty. If he decides to give you to his son Not only is that a phenomenally gracious thing for him to do, but it's an irresistible grace because you cannot fight a God who is in control of everything. And so then Jesus says, everybody who comes to me does so because they were given to me by my father. So there's a plan afoot here. The father decides names were written down before the foundation of the world in a book called the Lamb's Book of Life. So the people who are elected by God are the same people whose names are written down in a book that belongs to the Lamb of God. So that when he sacrificed himself, when he died, he died for those people and even went so far as to say, I lay my life down for the sheep. And then says to the Pharisees, why can't you hear my word? It's because you're not my sheep. So he's very clear about why it is that anybody would come to him. It is because God gave them to him. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. There's your eternal security right there. God chose you, gave you to Christ, and he'll never get rid of you. You should feel really good about that. Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven Not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So God sent Christ and then gave you to Christ. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose Nothing. Oh, there's really good news. If God the Father gave you to Christ, Christ is determined not to lose anything. He's never going to cast you out. He's never going to get rid of you. And he's not going to make a mistake one day and lose you. Oops, thought I had him. 
Instead, all that the Father gives to the Son are going to remain with the Son, and that is the will of the Father. Jesus said, I didn't come here to do my own will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, what shall I say as he was praying to the Father? Well, what will I say? Should I say, take this cup away from me? But for this very reason, I came here. I'm on the planet so that I will drink the cup of your wrath on behalf of your people. And so he acquiesces his will to the will of God and says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Here he says, I came here not to do my own will. I came here to do what the Father told me to do. And he told me to come pay the price for his people. And all those people he is determined to save, he gives to me. And all those that he gives to me, I lose none of them. You are really, really secure. Because you're in the hands of the Almighty who is determined to save you. And if that's the case, oh, you're getting saved. Now, this is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And then Jesus went back to the Father, and he told his disciples to wait, to tarry there around Jerusalem. Because they were going to be imbued with power from on high. Don't go out and preach my gospel yet until you have received that spirit of truth. When I go to the Father, he and I are going to send you that spirit. And then you'll be able to go out remembering all the things that I have taught you. So that you can accurately go preach my word. So the Father and the Son sent the spirit. Are you following this? God sent the Son... The son did what his father wanted him to, went back to heaven. The two of them send the spirit. The Holy Spirit seals us until the day of our redemption, keeps us persevering in the faith, intercedes for us when we pray, and will ultimately guide us to our heavenly destiny. All three persons of that one God are working on behalf of you. You're getting saved because Father, Son, and Spirit are completely for you, and they are all working as individuals in unity to the praise of the glory of our one God. You got that? So, it's all the Trinity. That is why we worship a Trinitarian God. Our salvation our life as a church and your life as an individual is wrapped up in the Trinitarian working of God. And you should be really, really grateful for that because it's a, a really creative, divine, eternal plan that you are right in the middle of. And do you think after that fine a plan after that big a sacrifice, after that eternal determination, after that powerful Holy Spirit has gotten inside you, do you think there's any way you can mess that up? No, you can't. Praise God. Fade, fade each earthly joy. They don't begin to compare with what we have coming for us. And so whatever our age, those joys should be faded.
We appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.